let's gavel it to let's gavel it to order. Um, Kim Johnson, thank you so much for joining me here today. Um, I'm really grateful for your time. First of all, um, just because steel drum history and um, culture and knowledge is something that I've been I've been personally passionate about my whole life, but recently really have been investing a lot of time <clears throat> time in reading history and digging into a lot of stuff that I just wasn't aware of as like a high school kid meeting Cliff Alexis for the first time, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. in 1994. I, no, but know, Cliff was, was magical. Eh? Cliff was, Cliff was so charismatic. He was, he's, he's one of my, I mean, when I, when I mention people in my life who are the reason I'm doing what I'm doing, Cliff is, is in that mix. And um, you met him at university. I met him at, at actually at, at Dover High School in Dover, Ohio, um, in 1994. I was probably 15 years old at the time, uh. um, and he, my high school steel drum director, Joan Wenzel, um, just randomly happened to purchase the first set of instruments he built when he moved to St. Paul, Minnesota, and those were the drums I played on when I was in high school in the middle of Ohio was a, a full set of cliff pans. And then I went to the university of Akron, which is where I got to know cliff a little bit, a little bit better. And then went to Trinidad, um, after, you know, on cliff's advice. And, um, but anyway, we're not here to talk about cliff exclusively, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. no, 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 but, but we can talk about whatever in this, in this chunk of time here, here, Kim. Um, but I kind of want my listeners to, to sort of, know where I started with you. Um, I started with my knowledge of you actually came from this book, from Tin Pan to Taspo. Um, That's a version of my PhD. Yeah. And, you know, and I had heard your name floated around a million times by various people in various contexts. And now we're here and I'm kind of, I have a million questions for you, but I kind of, my first one is, can you just take me back to like baby Kim Johnson and tell me a little bit about like what, Give me, give me a little bit of the stuff that you didn't talk about in, in any of these books about your upbringing around Pan and sort of what got you interested in this stuff. Because uh, also I don't want to assume – I think I don't want to assume that everybody in Trinidad plays Pan and knows all the history of Pan. Like it's not – like you in particular have a path that I find very interesting. So I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about it. Well, um, my childhood – in the, I was born in 1955. Mm-hmm. So, so my childhood would have been, um, say, from 1960, the 60s. And that means childhood, adolescence um, was, well, you know, adolescents define themselves by music. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, the 50s and the 60s, there was, well, American popular music. It was, you know, soul, funk, rock and roll. And the, the, the popular music of Trinidad was Calypso and Pan. And it is everyone my age. Um, that was the, the, the sonic environment you grew up in. Now, some played and some didn't. And even in the 60s, Pan was considered a kind of hooligan thing. Mm-hmm. So a respectable middle-class kid like myself um, would not have played Pan, but it was acceptable for you to hang out, you know, at at Carnival and so on, Mm. around a steel band, to go and listen to a steel band, because it was the music of Carnival. And I did what I think almost any young Trinidadian my age boy did. 
was you pushed pan. You see, they were on the road, these huge racks. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was an honor. It was a rite of passage for boys from, I would say, from about eight years up to mm -hmm. push. Um, and I, I distinctly remember, I told this story in my TEDx talk, I distinctly remember the first time I pushed a pan. And I must have been about, I don't know, maybe 10 years old or, or certainly younger than, than 11 or 12. But mm -hmm. I, and it was such an um, exhilarating feeling because mm -hmm. there's this, I mean, there are crowds of people and there's this steel band moving along the road and it's, it's pouring out like a, a huge tidal wave of music, of rhythmic music. So you're moving with it. But it's also um, something that has like... Uh, an aura of, of invincibility. And you as a boy, you're part of that. You're pushing the pan, so you are a legit member of it. You will just, you know, nobody can't trouble you or do anything to you now. You're just invincible because you're part of this vast, scary, invincible organism. And I remember, mm -hmm. I remember it very, very clearly, simply because while I was experiencing it, I was very surprised at this sort of, emotions welling up in me that I thought I'm going to have to do this again next year. Mm. <laughs> it's like a drug. I mean, you got hooked. Yes, immediately. So that, that, that was, um, that was very, very early on. Um, as I say, but otherwise everyone in, in at carnival steel band was the music of the streets, you know, the music and, in, in, in um, parties on, on the radio, would have been Calypsos, and we all knew um, the the popular Calypsonians. At the time, Sparrow and Kitchener were the, mm -hmm. the kings, the kings of, of, of um, Calypso. So we all knew that. Um, interestingly, now when I hear some of these songs, I realize they're actually quite smutty, but I didn't know that at the time as a child, you know. I, when Sparrow is singing, um, you know, salt, fish, Nothing. He's actually singing about you know women's private parts, but I didn't know that as a child. Mm -hmm. I'm singing along because it's, it's a groovy tune. So that's my sonic environment. As it came closer to the end of the sixties and and perhaps the early seventies, um, the 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 power of I would say American music mm -hmm. became greater. Um, James Brown, you know the whole Motown scene. Soul, I could remember um, 70, 71. Around then, um, I heard like Santana for the first time. And that was, that was just like mind-blowing because this was rock and roll that I liked, but with heavy percussion, with, you know, congas and so on. So yeah. it seemed to cater for the part of me that, that loved that heavy percussion but it was rock and roll that I also loved. I mean, I grew up as much on the Beatles and, and the Stones mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. all of that. So it was it was pretty eclectic. Well, can I ask you the, something that this is uh, uh, related to many of the questions I want to ask you, but something that you mentioned early on about that feeling you had when you're, you're pushing a rack um, where no one can mess with you. And you're part, you're part of something, even though your hand is on a rack and you're not making any noise, you're just, you're helping, right? That phenomenon 
wasn't a part of my life really in any way, any real palpable way until I went to Trinidad and saw and felt that same thing as a foreigner, as a white kid from Ohio. I grew up in a cornfield, mm. you know, and I go to Trinidad and they were like, just to be honest, I mean, there were two weeks where I was definitely having to cut my teeth and like, pro- not prove, but just, just like I needed to cut, I needed to hold my own. Mm-hmm. But after that two weeks was done and everybody was like, yeah, he's holding his own. I felt like I was all of a sudden in a family that was like 400 years old. You yes. know, and, and I, I think I know why, but I'm guessing, and I'm curious, like this is sort of maybe the theme I want to sort of talk with you about today um, in relation to your history, of your book, but like, what can you describe maybe a little more detail? What, what is that? Why, why does that sort of thing, and I'm sure it exists in many other cultures that I just haven't, I'm ignorant to and haven't had a lot of experience with, you know, West African Ghanaian drumming and Awe ensembles. Like, I'm sure there's different vibe, but in specifically in Trinidad, in the steel band, there is a culture there that I feel like, you know, you go to Trinidad, there's bands, there's Chinese, there's Indian, there's black, there's white, like it's women, men. I mean, it didn't always used to include women, but... Can you just address a little bit about like that 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 culture and why that exists and and what that is to you? Well, the, that's one of the really interesting things about steel band, and that's why I, I argue that um, the steel band is not first about music; it's first about um, generating belongingness, which music does. Mm-hmm. But it it that's why, in a sense, uh, a lot of the people, the original musicians in the steel bands were not by any means musicians. They could play a tune that they learned by rote. Mm-hmm. Um, but they weren't musicians in, this, in, in, in the full sense of the word because that was not their aim. Their aim was to be part of this group. And the group mm. was a community group. So you didn't have to actually be playing anything to be part of it. You know, some of the most well-known, um, famous in Trinidad um, men of the, of the steel band movement, never played an instrument. They were captains of bands. They were leaders. Um, but they, they, they did not necessarily play an instrument. And that, that ethos, I mean, it might have been amplified by the, the early years when the steel bands were um, sort of ostracized. You know, that, that created a kind of siege mentality it's like early Christianity. The more you repress them, the closer, the more tightly knit they are. I heard um, a great quote that that uh, oppression so or waters the seeds of its own demise. At you know, in the at the end of the day, and it's like because because you end up you end up strengthening. Like, yeah, you the, turn the bond. You, you turn coal into diamonds. I mean, you squash coal long enough, it turns into something you can't actually break and can cut anything, you know? And it's like, that's for me, what I'm gleaning from the history of the steel pan, the steel band as an ensemble, as an ethos that to me sort of rings true. Oh, definitely. And I mean, you see that happening with, you know, cults and all sorts of groups, but because, because of the way music functions on us as humans, that gives a particularly strong bond. You know, um, music can bring together complete strangers, mm-hmm. which, which unlike, say, a doctrine, you could be, you know, a, a, a Pentecostal or whatever. Yeah. But that, that's a doctrine. You need to learn it and, and identify with it. Music can immediately, instantly um, coordinate you with, with 
someone who's next to you, you've never seen them before in your life. You know, the rhythm coordinates your body, so you're moving the same way. And you might say the, the, the emotional journey that the melody takes you on, it, it takes both of you on. So all of a sudden, you're moving in sync. And that, that's a kind of bonding and a kind of um, uh, almost a surrender of the ego, the mm. individual ego, to something wider. I mean, I think that's why... Um, I think that's why we evolved to respond to music that way. Um, at least one of the reasons why, you know, the, the, the Neolithic, the cave, cave man, cave woman, um, singing around the campfire, you know, campfire song, it bonds people. You forget about your squabbles and your enemies and your jealousies. Mm-hmm. And it, it bonds the group. And it does it by making noise, you know, a deep, rich, loud noise that scares other animals away. Um, because loud noises, it, it suggests something big, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, a tiny little frog will go, Rrr! and it's trying to fool predators that, you know, predators that it's big and bad. Mm-hmm. So, so a, group of, a group of scared <laughs> cave people um, singing together becomes bonded and can scare off, you know, predators who are actually more ferocious than them. So I think in a sense, those are some of some of the roots of um, of, of of music that the steel band capitalized on and mm-hmm. grew with. You know, the steel band, um, ironically, is is, a, is uh, basically from the mid twentieth century. It really mm-hmm. came into its own um, from the end of the first third of the twentieth century, mm-hmm. by which time you know, recorded music had, had really come into its own and had started to, to elbow out um, live, collectively performed music. Earlier in, in, in the 20th century, people sang. People played, you know, all middle-class girls learned piano and you'd have mm-hmm. sing-alongs at home. And people mm-hmm. sang when they worked, um, you know, um, fishermen, when they're rowing. You, you see, foot, you know, films people rowing, whatever you did, you did it to music. Um, but that began to be replaced in, in the 20th century. And it's, it's almost been completely replaced now. And it's strange that the steel band came along just when that was, was being um, elbowed out of, of mm. the way and kind of staked its claim in this little area of territory and continues to hold its end there. And that's what you experience in it. And a lot of what a lot of the um, pedagogic and other aspects of steel band culture and steel band practice, I think, um, is geared towards enhancing that. So, for example, um, you've seen that in Trinidad, you could go into a panyard. Uh, they're now learning the song. They're practicing. They're playing the same few bars, you know, over and over and over. And if you think of any other um, performing artist, you know, dancer, musician, actor, they do, they practice, they learn their lines or whatever privately. Mm-hmm. So why does a steel band invite you in, um, you know, at the beginning? And I mean, there are several ways in which this works, but one is that it was always defined as a community organization. Mm-hmm. It belongs to the community and, and they can't, they can't keep out anyone of the community. So you've been in phase two. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, phase two has sometimes they 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 not just phase two. There's some steel bands. They would have, um, you know, a, a, a local madman who will hang out in the panyard and is a legitimate part of the band. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a homeless person. Mm-hmm. Uh, stray dogs will come in the panyard every night to be fed, and they are part. They are part of the steel band in a sense. There was a guy. There was a guy in phase. Two, sorry to interrupt, Kim. There, yeah. was a, there was a gentleman in phase two's yard, and I. I don't think I ever got his name. We just called him Oscar De La Hoya, because for the entire rehearsal, he would he would he would shadow box in front of the band. Right. The whole time for like eight hours, just like shadow boxing while we rehearsed it. I was like, I this guy's way more committed to his shadow boxing than I am to learning this pan part right now, and that's just true, you know. Yeah, well, he has you know mental problems, yeah, but sure. But nobody was telling him to, to nobody no, was telling him to leave. No, he's part of the band, right? As a that's my fact, point. If somebody went and told him to leave, they would say, No, you can't tell him to leave. How dare you? He's part of the band, yes. So, so it is that that community. And ironically, you know, the, there's a, a sort of um, competitiveness stroke um, collaboration between and within steel bands that also enhanced that because, in a way, the competition between steel bands meant that they won the best. If the best person is white, black, green, yellow, has three arms and two noses, they are the best. They will help mm-hmm. your band. So the accounts I've, I've had of, you know, some of the earliest children in the steel band, mm-hmm. like, for example, Daisy James, who, who still has a steel band in, in Lavanty called the Harlem Syncopators. She was involved in the 40s in Casablanca, which was, you know, the most scary steel band in Trinidad at the time. And how she started playing was that her brother used to hide the pan under the house. And she, being a little sister and about seven or eight years old, saw that. And when he's out, she would go and play it. And she became quite good until he discovered. And he took her in the yard and, and said, well, do what you do. And they all thought, well, wow, this is amazing. Now, that is too the most two diff- two of the most difficult social barriers being broken right there, mm-hmm. um, because it's not just gender; it's age, and that's in a, in some ways it's almost more difficult than gender to have a seven or eight year old child in in a in an organization of adults, and the child is is you know legitimately there not as a mascot or so, but because they are good enough. That's that's a kind of huge social barrier. Well, that was that was in Phase Two's yard um, when I was in when I was in college. I was I think I was twenty one at the time, you know. And I had been in I had played all in high school, and I went to the University of Akron. And again, I'm 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 telling this story out of just to show my ignorance of like you know at the University of Akron, I was one of the guys who like I could sight read on pan, I could play pan, I could. I was playing a lot of gigs. I had a little bit of confidence, you know, and then I go to to Trinidad for the first time and all of the things that happen when you leave your home the first time in your life happened. But then a 13-year-old kid walks in the yard and starts just listening to the tune. He listens through it once and plays about half of it correctly, listens through it again, gets the other half. And I'm like, 
who in the hell is this kid that everybody's now talking to and no one's talking to me? Like, I'm, I'm having this existential crisis as a 21-year-old. <laughs> Do you know who that person turned out to be? Kendall K. Williams, who I now teach with at NYU. At, at NYU, yes. And so anyway, like, to me, it's like that – all of these these cognitive dissonances I was having as a foreigner and a young student of music coming into this new culture where the rules were different. Nobody, people cared if I played the right notes, but people cared more if I was trying. You know, like Almond St. Rose was jumping down my throat every time I mis I misunderstood something he said to me, but it was the effort I made to like come back and uh-huh. learn it. Um, and I'm I'm curious, just as a historian for you, like one of the things in reading your book that you know I, I was reading another book concurrently with from Tim Panatasbo called "Bury the Chains" by Adam Hochschild. Uh, I don't know if you've read this book. It's about it's about the end of the British slave trade um, mm-hmm. in the like early 1930s and or 1830s, excuse 1830s, me, 1830s, 1830s, yeah. And uh, it just talks about like 12 people who, over the course of like 50 years, from you know late 1700s through the Revolutionary War, all the way up through when slavery was ended in, in Great Britain, talking about how this stuff happened, and it really imparted me on the, the imparted on me this idea of history is made in days, not years. Like when we think of slavery ending 156 years ago, that feels like, oh, that's a long time ago. But if you think of it as 55,000 days ago, all of a sudden you start to then look out the window and you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> I now understand a little bit why, because it, it, it doesn't happen in years. It's decisions made every day. And your book, reading it concurrently, was just like, holy smokes. Like, I think I know a lot about people in Trinidad and, and random figures who like had an important thing. And like every page was like, and then this guy did this thing and then took a nap. And then the next day somebody stole his idea and took it this way. And then another band did this. And then this guy had this idea. And it was like, I'm reading about 365 different stories every day here. And I'm mm. curious for you as a historian and, and I say this also in the context of steel pan history is being written while the people are still alive. And that's the other th- reason I wanted to talk to you, like Bertie Marshall, uh, Hugh Lloyd Yip Young. Like these, these are guys who were there at the horse's mouth when this stuff was started and they're now getting older. And I'm curious for you as, an, as a writer and historian, how do you juggle your ethics? Like what do you feel your responsibility is? Knowing that the tale of all of this, how this stuff – came out of World War II, it came out of way prior to that, oppression prior to that, and then World War II and American occupation of Trinidad and all of these things. But it's a collective, it's a collection of days and people like Ellie Minette deciding to make a pan called the Barracuda, which then I think Casablanca or Tokyo hung from Tokyo. a tree. Tokyo. Tokyo hung from a tree. And it's just like all of these things are colliding in ways. I'm like, Kim, I don't know how to tell this story. It's so awesome and so like so complicated. So how do you... How do you as a historian parse that out? Um, well, I didn't do it first as a historian. I did it first as a journalist. So oh, I did okay. it in piecemeal. And that's how, in a sense, I stumbled onto it. I, I, I didn't have a, you know, a mission to do this. Um, I was working. I was a feature writer on the Sunday Express. Mm-hmm. And um, the editor at the time, he, he liked series. It's like, you know, a show. Mm-hmm. One good thing about a show is that you can draw people for next week's newspaper rather right. than a one-off movie. Right. And so, I mean, there was a guy who worked with us called David Brewster, and he wrote about 
famous boxers in Trinidad and athletes. Um, there was a, a, a female journalist on, on the Sunday desk who wrote about women who played music. And one day, you know, he asked me to write about um, bad guys, bad jobs, guys who, you know, rough, rough guys. Mm-hmm. And that evening, I went by a friend of mine, Stephen Stumfley, who wrote, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. one of the early, very important books on Pan. I, I've, I've been friends with Stephen since he was doing his PhD in Trinidad. It's called The Steel Band Movement, if people yes. don't know what, know what it is. It's a really great book. Great, great book. Steve is now the executive director of the um, Society of Ethnomusicology. Um, yeah, and I've tried to get him to come on the podcast, and he and he was just like, "Oh, I think I I don't I don't know my Trinidad history. I shouldn't come on." And he and I think he was just like, "You should talk to Kim Johnson." I was like, "Well, I'll, yes, I will, but I would like to talk to you too. I think you wrote a book about it. I think you could talk about it, you know." But he was very he was very humble and shy. So yes, that's Steve. But that night I went by Steve and, and I said, Steve, you know, we're just talking. And I said, yeah, I have to write something about, you know, these bad guys. And he said, well, why don't you talk to the steel band men? They were bad. So I went, and I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. And I went to Tokyo's Panyard, which was mm-hmm. fairly close to the, the, the express office. Um, it's a walk, short walk away. And I met some of the bad guys there. And they, they just regaled me with stories. Um, and I wrote it in the Sunday paper, and it was very, very enthusiastically received. I mean, people were phoning, saying, that was great. Mm. Uh, and one thing I noticed about the stories, um, they were all about Tokyo um, people. And there's always been a kind of rivalry between East Port of Spain and West Port of Spain. So mm. I thought, well, look, I'll balance it by going, by abandoning the West. And I chose Invaders. So I went there to try to do the same thing the, um, for the following Sunday Express. And I got a whole lot of different stories that revolved around invaders. And um, again, that was very well received. So I thought, well, in Trinidad, there, there's a sort of Port of Spain bias. Mm. People think that, you know, Trinidad is equals Port of Spain. So I thought I'll, I'll break out of that. And I went to San Fernando. And by then, I'd come to realize that every steel band had wonderful stories, narratives. You know, mm-hmm. Some were funny, some were, were outrageous. Um, and I started a series that's called Pan Pioneers, and that ran on for over a year. Mm-hmm. And after even perhaps um, two or three months, I had become well-known among the, the, the community of, of sort of senior pan men. So when I went by someone's house, he had already read stories mm-hmm. of his friends or his enemies, his erstwhile enemies. And um, it gave me a, a credibility that, for example, a PhD student wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they knew me from my writing. They knew my sympathy. And they thought... Um, they were getting their just desserts. They were being recognized because that was the first time they'd ever been written about. You know, well, when when I started, at the time, Andy Narell had written something about um, Ellie Manette and Keith Smith, who was an editor um, at the same paper, who also lived in Laventille, had written about Bertie Marshall. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. Mm. No one had told the story of Anthony Williams or, or anyone. 
So imagine my surprise when I realized it's not just four or five important steel band men. There are hundreds of stories. Now, I say that um, with the qualification that in the 50s, there were some stories written about steel band men. Mm -hmm. The first being Ellie Manette. Um, Ellie Manette was the darling of the middle class. Mm -hmm. Um, And indeed, you know, in in my film... um, Pan or Music Odyssey, I, I, I cobbled together stories from different people. And the idea of someone stabbing someone in a fight and being thrown in jail, um, that's what happened with Ellie Manette. And the reason why the sort of middle-class social workers and, and um, left-wing lawyers and so on quickly sprang into action to see how they could get Ellie Manette off was that precisely that they all supported invaders. They were all from Woodbrook, which was, you know, the kind of mm-hmm. mean, mm-hmm. urban, middle-class area. If Ali Manette had been from Tokyo, um, he would have rotted in jail. Uh, well, so, that, sorry, sorry, go ahead, sorry. So as I accumulated the stories and I heard the same thing from different sides of, of, of you know, what you would call these different sides of the track and so on, a, a richer picture began to um, emerge, uh, which eventually became quite different from the sort of standard um, origin story of the, the, the steel band. So, for example, I mean, at times I've given a, a talk in Trinidad about, you know, 10 misconceptions about steel band, because the sort of romantic ideas are still very, very popular here. Well, well that, and they're, they're very popular here too. And I, and I'm, I'm going to, confess something to you and and please if you if you hang up the zoom call right now and never speak to me ever again i would understand (laughs) but you know one of the things as a student at the university of akron that i was i'm very grateful for was we were like there was a real gigging scene there um, where we're playing you know bat mitzvahs and you know pig roasts and like and because they knew the university had a steel band there was just work all the time and we were playing party but we did a lot of educational shows where we would go to like you know elementary schools and talk about you know where this music comes from and at that time again i'm going to admit i i did not do the research i should have done but i was also hanging with my you know cliff alexis was somebody who i was hanging around with all the time and I sort of had an image in my head of how the steel band came to a thing, or the steel drum was invented, steel pan was invented. And I've told this story many times to many elementary school kids about Spree Simon, Winston Bartholomew, Bartholomew, <laughs> like, like the whole, like, it's the part of the story that, like, if you're going to tell, you have five seconds to tell somebody something, like, oh, okay, and I did it hundreds of You've times. You've gone... Can you hear me? You've gone side. Yes, you're back. Okay, sorry. Um, I've told a story that is not completely accurate hundreds of times because I I was doing it. it there were, there just wasn't a lot of resources, and there wasn't even yeah. anybody there telling me that I should be reading a resource. It was because there weren't a lot of books in the '90s that I could just like grab. Be like, oh wow, yes, Winston Bartholomew was there, but not in the in Spree Simon. Oh, this is actually oh wow. And that was the thing that I gleaned from your book the most was like oof. 
I can't. It was tell, a collective thing. I can't tell that story anymore, and I need to go back to those <laughs> elementary schools and be like, "Can we have a second assembly so I can <laughs> clarify some things?" Because we need to read this book. Um, uh-huh. But like, but you're you're telling things like this is something I've learned from my podcast. I mean, when you when you talk to people and you ask them their side of the story, almost everybody is totally pumped to tell you their side of the story. And I'm curious for you then, as you know, as a podcaster. Ethically, I, I'm not making any money off of this. I'm not trying to sell this for anything. Like this is a this is just I like to talk to people. So I'm not going to necessarily if you make up something about your life that you feel is more interesting. <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to fact check that. If yeah, I were I writing a book about the history of my podcast and about the validity of what people said, I would then go back and fact check things and try to make sure I knew what was saying. So now, given that you are writing historic whether or not you consider yourself a historian you're writing a document that is going to be considered part of the historical record record yes how do you then with your scalpel at home make decisions as to whether or not or do you about what somebody's told you whether or not they've embellished something do you keep the embellishment if if some if somebody else tells you something that is a, like counters something somebody else has told you how do you deal with that um well i try to triangulate it um, mm-hmm. In other words, I, if I could get two or more people to say the same thing independently, I would tend to go with that. Mm-hmm. I also um, try to, with a few exceptions, I try to get people to speak about um, what they saw rather than what they heard, because that actually is, is, is a greater form of distortion. You know, somebody told me this, and someone might have told them, and it, it, you know, it gets distorted along the way. If you said, you know, when you were 10 years old, you did this, I would give it more credence than if you said, well, you know, somebody told me that that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but, well, I mean, when I was doing the research for, for the PhD, the two main things is I tried to triangulate it, triangulate, you know, the oral stories. And I also try to relate them to um, other forms of historical documentation, mm-hmm. um, specific events. You say, well, I, I, the first time I heard Pan was in, um, you know, I was eight years old. And I'd say, well, look, was it during the war or was it after the war? Mm-hmm. You know, if you could relate it to big mm-hmm. events like that, the, it, it sort of sharpens their memory. But if it's, it's small, small things like, um, for example, one, one, one of my favorite photographs in the book, it's some kids, um, and they're holding up, they, they, they're playing some very, very early pans. And it actually took me quite a while to find them. I sort of had given up hope, and then I was showing the the. the, the some photographs to an old person, and he said, I recognize that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll show you. It's this photograph. Mm-hmm. Right? The guy yeah. who's bending over yeah. the drum, yeah. um, he was the only one alive at the time, and I met him. He was by then blind, so he couldn't identify the photograph himself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but I described it, and he said it was Christmas Day, and they used to go um, to a nearby sort of middle class area 
and play and they would get coins or maybe an apple or something so and it was 1946 or or something he was quite specific no i i did i would feel i could accept that for what it is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um the person who i got the photograph from identified where the house was and it was indeed a middle class area she said yes that's my grandfather's house um and i recognized from the tiles on the floor and so on so mm-hmm. It's a call I make with every every particular story it depends on the importance of the story. I mean one of the most controversial stories is who started using the 55 gallon oil drum. Uh many people credit Ellie Manette mm-hmm. with it. Um I don't the reason being I have um a, a published interview with Ellie in 1947 where he says that um he used a olive oil can those were the best for the ping pong or something so mm-hmm. and at the same time Neville Jules mm-hmm. who was you know one of the founding members of Trinidad All Stars said that the first time he saw a 55 gallon oil drum was at a, a competition held in a, a cinema in the east of Trinidad in in um, Tunapuna mm-hmm. and you know everybody laughed when when the person came up because it was so big mm-hmm. i mean it reminded me of the first time people began using the large tennis rackets i played mm-hmm. tennis and when i saw this i laughed because it, you know it just looks awkward yeah, you're yeah. not accustomed sure, to yeah. um and i asked around the area and i got this story about a particular band from the east where the guy said yes we 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 used it was a certain person he used this thing and yes we went up on stage and they did laugh at us so i took that story because it was it was sort of triangulated um tony williams said very early on he he um tried to use a, a 55 gallon oil drum but when he took it to his band he was in a band called sun valley um the the captain and the tuner for that band just laughed and said no 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 we don't want that and he said well he forgot about it then mm. i would tend to believe um tony williams because if you if you meet the man if you meet his uh, his character um is a sort of scrupulous honesty mm. um sometimes i suspect that you know he 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 has almost almost bordering on aspergers mild aspergers So for example Steve Stumfley interviewed him and mm-hmm. I have Steve's, Steve's interview and Steve visited him at his home which is close to where I live and Steve asked him so did you live here you know your entire life and Tony Williams said yes my entire left life except for 11 days after I was born you know something was wrong with me and even though they discharged my mother they kept me in the hospital for 11 days so he didn't count those 11 days <laughs> i mean is that hilarious. kind of though someone like that if he says you know i tried this in 1945 and but it was rejected i will take yeah. his word well he's somebody I, i i've never met anthony williams um but i've used I've talked about him a lot to my students as in terms of talking about the process of innovation and 
and how innovation can affect the way you as an artist then arrange, you know, in terms of Anthony, how you arrange for your, for, you know, Pan Am North Stars. We look at the recording of, from 1962 with uh, Dan is the man in the van. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. It's really great. It's the first, I mean, it's the first panorama, like uh, lovely, awesome. One year later, Mama Dis's Moss, the band in that time period, Anthony has reworked the way he tunes Pan because he's now figured out how to put harmonics in. The band all of a sudden in one year is completely different sonically. And you now hear every instrument has its own voice. And, mm-hmm. and his arrangement is like exponentially more complicated with Mama Dis's Moss than it is with Dan is the Man in the Van. What that says to me is like, yeah, sure, he's an innovator, all those things. But that I'm like, that was one year. You rebuilt a whole steel band in one year and developed your arranging. There's got to be some, like, there's some, there's something with Anthony that I feel is unique. And I don't, I've never met him, but I'm sort of speculating here. And when you said the oh, thing absolutely. about, I don't know, am absolutely I, am I misdiagnosing unique. anything here? Yeah, absolutely unique. I mean, when it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, he, he's now losing a lot of his memory and so on, because when I f- first spoke to him many years ago and he was as sharp as ever, he had a preciseness in, in how he spoke. So if you asked him, so Anthony, what, what, what kind of music did steel bands play in, in 1945? He would respond almost like a textbook. He would say this, played three types of things, and they would have so many notes, and, they would, and he would hum out what they would play. And um, almost, he would speak almost in bulleted points. Um, so he had that precision. I mean, once I visited him, uh, and it was um, a panorama night or a panorama day, uh, maybe small bands or something. So was was performing, and he was looking at it on television. But he also had a radio there, and I asked him why, and he said, "Well, if electricity, there was a problem with electricity. It was a battery radio. He could switch it on and still listen." Mm. You know, he had everything about him had that thoroughness and precision. His stepfather or grandfather, I can't recall which, made acoustic basses. Mm-hmm. Um, and he helped him. And, and you know, he, he, he pointed out that um, he, when he is sanding it and making it smooth, he found it better to work at night with a low light because that way, the, when the shadow come across, you can see any imperfections uh... in, the, in the shape. It would be highlighted. That, well, uh, you know, I when I again, like my knowledge of of every tuner from Trinidad and tuner arranger. Um, I mean, Anthony's unique, I think, right in in terms of the tuner arranger hats that he wears. Um, but well, Cliff, I, no, but you met Cliff, eh? Yeah, yeah. But I'm I'm saying, um, yeah, and I and again, I'm I'm glad. Well, I'm not glad Cliff is gone, but he would reach out of his grave and punch me in the face if I said what I'm about to say. Because, but but I would say that Anthony has, at the time period he was doing it in the specific way he did it, I would I would lobby even if Cliff were here, I would say I think Anthony's particular input at that moment jarred loose something then for every other arranger and every other tuner in 1963 and onward 
Yes. Including oh, yes. Jit Samaru and Robbie Greenwich and all these people well, years later in definitely. the 80s to be like, oh, all right, we can do this. And had Anthony not decided to put the harmonics in in 1963 in that in that off time, you know, like I feel like that particular moment was a real sliding door moment for Pan. And had Anthony just decided for whatever reason to be like, I'm bored. I'm not going to do that. Like you and I might not be here talking. Somebody else might have done it, but I, he's a real figure. And, and I'm oh, yes. But now that again, that's the personality of the man. I mean, he, for example, he was the one who introduced um, the oil drums to the bass and the cellos. Mm, mm. Um, in 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 what was the to not to be the first modern steel band, mm-hmm. um, Taspo. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, you got a separation between what we call the stage side, that's the concert band, mm-hmm. and the road band. Because the road band has to be mobile, mm-hmm. um, and it would—it's like impossible to carry either two drums, <laughs> yeah, or uh, even one bass, which is the full. So the 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 um, road band kept the old biscuit drums and the old what they call um, mm-hmm. tune booms, which is doom 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 right, doom right. doom mm-hmm. doom doom doom. Just two notes. Yeah, because they had to be mobile. Right, and Anthony was dissatisfied with that because he wanted proper full bass lines, mm-hmm. and that's why he invented wheels on the drums so that you could have bass. Um, you could have fifty-five gallon oil drums to give you a deep, rich bass, and you could have a, a, at least at least one octave. Yeah, well, so I mean, he, he, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. So he has always had that. Um, almost obsessive perfectionism mm. about him. And when they introduced the, the, the first panorama of uh, 1963, I remember talking with several of the pan pioneers, and it was a new thing. They didn't know how to take it. Um, it wasn't the most important competition in Trinidad. And Anthony was the only person who took it absolutely seriously because he took everything absolutely seriously. <laughs> He did not do anything, you know, okay, well, I'll just do it because um, I, I have to do it. So he, he put in his best arrangement and he changed the key. Um, steel bands were accustomed to changing keys in other kinds of music when they played, you know, um, dance music and so on, mm-hmm. but not in calypsos mm-hmm. and panorama they had to play a calypso so they just played it straight but tony was bringing his best to it because he brought his best to everything and he was at the time listening to um a lot of bark and that's mm. quite interesting mm. because you know recently i was listening to that series um where rick rubin interviews paul mccartney mm-hmm. and Paul McCartney said, yeah, I, I was listening to Bach when I did yesterday. And, and um, that's why I put in a, a descending. A, no, it's, it's an early song he had composed, which subsequently became yesterday. It has a descending bass. And Anthony, this, for the same reason, listening to Bach, put a descending bass. And he was already trying, you know, kind of counterpoints like that as early as Dan is the man. Um, so... Yes, he was the right person because he took this, he took Panorama much more seriously than um, the others did. Because 
up until perhaps the mid the mid 60s 65 or 66 the most popular competition was not panorama it was what we call the bomb mm-hmm. the bomb was when you take some non trinidadian music often it could be a piece of classical music but it equally could be um, some pop music, a pop song but you play it to calypso rhythm mm-hmm. um, you know it's like when people um Swing the classics, you know, Hazel Scott, Trinidad pianist. Well, yeah, the year that I was in phase, I think Bugsy's bomb tune was the theme from Godfather. Um, right. And, you know, I played that for eight hours on Juve Morning, you know, <laughs> to a Calypso beat. <laughs> I, I blacked out for most of it, but it was, it was that, that was the bomb tune that year. Right, right. But in the early days, they used a lot of classical music um, mm-hmm. in the bomb tunes. But um, by the mid-60s, I mean, the, the panorama, it came in in 1963, and it was seen by the government as a sort of national thing. You know, this is the national instrument, and we have to play the national music, which is Calypso, and we are giving, you know, the largest prizes. They had to give the largest prizes because the steel bands would not have performed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. otherwise because they made more money playing in parties. Yeah, it's expensive to take all those drums places and organize all those so, people right so um but tony took it seriously so seriously that when when he didn't win in um after 19 in 1966 he just he just pissed off with them and said i'm not going back to that i mean a lot of the former members think it was a mistake and maybe it was but he was just pissed off with, mm. with he thought he he deserved to win and um well, he didn't can I can I ask you? I mean, one of the other things too that's that is uh, you know the idea of colonial colonialism and decolonization is something that's certainly been in the the ether in, in the United States in terms of our discussions around class and race and yeah. how we how we deal with our own history. I mean, the thing that's interesting to me about Anthony Williams and Mighty Sparrow around the time, and, and I'm sorry if I misspoke, Dan, Dan is the man in the van as a panorama tune arranged by Anthony was 1963, correct? Yes. Yes, 1963, and then Mama Dismas is 64. 1962 was when Trinidad was gained, independent. Its, yes. gained its independence from Great Britain. And Dr. Eric Williams was the prime minister at the time. At the, there was there were movements. I believe you addressed some of it in your book, but I uh, Stemfley definitely addresses it. The People's National Movement um, as a political entity, um, s- purposefully making moves to side up with steel bands as a way to oh definitely um, definitely get votes um, and those sorts of things. Can you just talk a little bit about like a little bit of what what was going on politically in Trinidad at the time and like how all these things were crossing each other? Oh. That's that's really a. Uh, I, I, let, me, let me drill. Let me. I can drill down a little bit deeper and give you something no, more specific. No, I, I, let, let me see if I could disentangle it. I mean, um, the 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 two parties at the time. One was the People's National Movement, an emphasis on the word national, and the other was the Democratic Labour Party. Mm-hmm. Um, now they they tended to be a sort of racially segregated. But not absolutely. The the People's National Movement tended to be um, black with a sprinkling of white and a tiny sprinkling of Indian, mainly Muslim Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, the DLP tended to be mainly Indian. 
with a very, very tiny sprinkling of white. Mm. Um, but no, but, and I broad brush here, but no, no blacks like that. That wasn't part of, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't part okay. of them. Okay. No, in 1961, um, the DLP won the federal elections, federal being there was a, a West Indies federation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were trying to move towards becoming a federal um, country and they won the federal elections, not the national elections, but the federal. And um, in 1960, sorry. And that kind of um, deepened the rivalry between the two parties. It, it was like, you know, Trump and Biden, it was like n- the worst came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and Williams and a lot of the people who supported him, they tended to be the steel bands because... Um, Afro-Trinidadians saw Williams as, as their, their, their savior, their, um, their boy. Mm-hmm. And the steel bands came out in support of him, um, not just demonstrating and marching and so on, but in trying to intimidate the other side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they would go and break up the, uh, the, the political meetings of the other side. And sometimes they'd go and beat people, um, not okay. all of the steel bands, but can um, I ask? Can I ask yeah. though? Like the and, and this is, could be my ignorance, but is one of the reasons that that a political organization would want to team up with a steel band because one of like if we're just calling balls and strikes, what a steel band was in the 1960s was a large group of relatively organized yes people that would fight to the death for what they believed in and and and. The steel band is not just the members playing. The steel band represents a community. Right. The people pushing, the people making yes. food, like all of it. And the, so na- these are the neighbors, the old women, they're not pushing, but that's my band. So, indeed, um, very, very early on, I think it might have been about 1959, mm-hmm. there was a, a feud between two steel bands in East Port of Spain, Desperados and Tokyo that was becoming more and more violent. And um, the prime minister, Eric Williams, you know, he asked them, you know, what, what can we do to stop this violence? It's, it's really getting out of hand now. And they said, we need jobs. You know, none of us are working. That's, we, we, want, we want employment. Mm-hmm. And he created a sort of make work, um, welfare employment. Um, in those two communities in East Port of Spain, and they were administered by the steel bands. So the beginning of our welfare system was created for and administered by the steel bands, Desperados and Tokyo. What was the, was, was there a name to this? Uh, it was you, called Special Works. And it was, but it was, speci- sorry, I'm just trying, pardon, I'm trying to imagine a prime minister of a government being like, here's a work program and you all can run it. Like what? <laughs> Like, well, well, the, the, the person, work? the leader of Desperados, George Yates, mm-hmm. became the special advisor to the prime minister. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, you see, you have to think of steel bands as not just musical ensembles, but they also they also have things in common with trade unions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and with football teams. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, 
so there, there is the welfare aspect with that trade union and the, and, and the lobbying aspect that trade unions have. And there's the, 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 the partisanship of football teams. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of very hybrid um, organizations that a politician really wants on his side because you don't just have people who will defend you. You have a direct link into the community. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is, it's something I, I noticed. Um, I mean, we were all remote this past year, but I think you guys, you all just had elections a year, year and a half ago, two years ago, something. Yeah. And, and I've done, I've drilled and worked with Skiffle Bunch now for a couple of years. And, yes. and Junior Regrello is mayor of San Fernando and is part of the PNM. And yes. to sort of, you know, I saw the band or, you know, there's a, there was an organization, they had all the red shirts and I was like, wait a minute, I've seen red shirts before. I know what that picture is. And like, you go back and you look at Dr. Eric Williams. Or Dal- anyway, to me, it was like, okay. And the way I know what I know of how Junior runs the, the band in San Fernando, the way that that whole organization, like things started to make a little, and not to say that there aren't complications and that things work smoothly all the time. Like, of course that's not the case, but like, Things made a lot more sense when I started to look back and see the political machinations in Trinidad, yeah, and how they've manifested now. Like, and now when I go there and I and I see somebody in a red PNM shirt in a skiffle yard, I'm like, oh, like, okay, right. I know, I know why this is happening this particular way. Um, and it's something, it's something too that just the, the intersection, the intersection in Trinidad of class and race is something that has always been really interesting to me, and especially after this last year in the United States, where we're doing a lot of self reflection as a, like a self autopsy on our own ourselves as a country in terms of how we've dealt with race. There's been very little talk of class in America. It's mainly been focused on race, and I understand why. But in Trinidad, I think this goes back to maybe my first question or my question to you about the like, you know, why is a white kid accepted in in a band in Trinidad? Um, you know, how class is a thing in Trinidad, and that was made clear in your book. Like Ellie Minette, you've said it several times. Ellie Minette was of a middle class, but there were people who were below him class wise who didn't have the mobility maybe that he had. I'm curious, like how, and again, sorry to throw another grenade in the mix. The term cultural appropriation is something that has been on a lot of people's minds in America in particular about how you're influenced. And there's one tiny sort of like inside baseball conversation that happens in the, in the contemporary percussion world that I'm in, in like the university settings at like Yale and Princeton and is like hitting a skin drum with a stick is cultural appropriation because skin drums are hand drums, hand drums, congas, bongos, and stuff like that. Djembe's. Now, mm-hmm. I pe- to be clear, I don't. I'm not saying that, but people who say that obviously are missing the like. Well, then you haven't heard an Away drumming ensemble. You haven't heard. There's a million versions of this, of course. But the idea of playing playing a set of bongos or a set of congas with sticks, especially sticks taped up with like you know crazy, so they really get loud. I'm just like, well, if that's your if that's your rubric, you're never going to play in a steel band. Steel yeah, band's exactly. Never, so, but I also the, the the sort of ethical relativism here. I want to sort of I want to allow room for in Trinidad. How is how are those things talked about in the like? Because you all everybody's living on an island with like 1.2 million people. You're all crammed in. I asked um, 
uh, I can't remember his name. Is totally blanking about uh, he ranges for supernovas. Emirates. Well, Emirates. Emirates. Yeah, yes. Emirates. I was talking with Emirates. I was like, "How do you?" And he's like, "I don't even know how to answer the question you're asking." Like Indian rhythms are in soca in in the way the congas and bongas are played, and then you've got the break drum, and then you've got a scratcher, and then the rhythms we're playing though are from Africa. Like what? Like how are those conversations happening in Trinidad right now in terms of how that all mixes together, or are they happening at all? Um, they're not happening at a particularly profound level. They're happening more more at a sort of very general, you know, um, kind of all of we is one. Yeah. Um, but for example, the way if if you speak with Cubans, they will say, "Look, this rhythm comes from the Lukumi." Um, group in, in, in West Africa and this one is from here and they could actually pause um, things. Mm-hmm. Trinidadians are, uh, don't have that subtlety. So again... But, this, but though, they, like if a band like All Stars has, like when their low drummer comes in Yes, starts, I mean, it, there it, are differences. A, but there's a strum pattern playing, right? That everybody knows that when, when All Stars, and when they play really high on the tenor pans, like that's a thing only all stars can do, right? If Renegades all of a sudden started doing that exact same thing, there would probably, I'll bet, be a discussion of like, hold up a second, you're copying, <laughs> you're, copying. You're, you're appropriating our thing here. Um, like, but I, you know, I, I don't see that happening on a daily basis. But like, you know, the, there there are uniquenesses band to band that oh, could definitely be, could definitely. be co-opted. I mean, there, you know? but there were more. There were much more before. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, in, in, in the past few decades with, you know, arrangers moving around and so on, they, mm-hmm. they yeah, that's uh, true. arrangers arranging for several bands and tuners moving around. Yeah. Um, they, they it's sort of, um, kind of leveled it off, but I mean, the old guys who have spoken to us said that, you know, you could know a band long before you've seen it from how the pans sound, mm-hmm. how the arrangement goes, how the rhythms are, and or you could know whether a band was from East Port of Spain or West Port of Spain from just the rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the very, very early days, uh, when some steel bands had bugles, again, that mm-hmm. would be another identifying mark. So I love that history, by the way. And I, I've I've told Kendall Williams, I was like, bro, the next panorama you arrange has to has has to have at least ten bugles in it because <laughs> that shit is awesome. And I would love to hear like the military background, like the idea that they're transcribing like the Reveille calls and stuff yes. and adapting it. But the thing is, the early the early, the earliest pans that that. Well, let me see how to put this. People think that pan moved from being, uh, you know, just pure rhythm to um, playing, you know, nursery rhymes, Mary Had a Little Lamb, mm-hmm. and then playing more complex melodies. But that's not how, the, that's not how it works. Um, it's like the, even, even a simple rhythm would have um, two or three tones. I mean, if I were to drum on, on this, this table... You know, whether I hit with the tips of my fingers or, mm-hmm. or the palm of my hand, I'll get a difference on you. So it's not a question of different tones. It's um, whether they were um, musical tones and it would move from 
a rhythm to a more complex rhythm to an ostinato, mm-hmm. which is a, a rhythm but a more complex one. And then a simple melody. And it was all, um, it's all uh, along a, a spectrum. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a point when one thing would stop and something new would start. It's like, for example, if you were to take a, you know, a card, a playing card, and you put it on the front fork of a bicycle and you ride, it would go, you know, you'd hear a sound, tack, 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 tack. And as you move faster, it would go tack, 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 tack. And then you would stop hearing the individual ones and you would hear a tone, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which would then rise as you go faster. Mm-hmm. So it, it, and that's all along a spectrum. And then there's an abrupt shift. Um, mm. And that's, that's how Pan moved. It moved from, you know, rhythm to more complex rhythm to ostinatos. And the earliest ostinatos would have been, you know, with three notes, what they call the, the tenor kittle. It's, it's played it on mm-hmm. the side like a, a military kettle drum. And it played something like a bugle reveille. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't know one has ever told me this, so I mean, it's just my speculation, but I think it would have been influenced by the bugle reveille. There were so many Americans in Trinidad at the time, you know, American soldiers. They stole bugles from them, and, and um, that's what bugles do. They, they well, play. And, yeah, they, they play the harmonic series. Yes. Which is only like you only need five or six notes, and so like you can if you have a kittle or, or a tenor kittle or something that has three or four, you can tune a pentatonic scale, and you can if you're if you're a young kid, like let's say I'm a young kid in 1942 and I'm walking around the streets of Trinidad and I have an interest in sort of I'm musically inclined and I I hear whatever it is. And I go and, home and I and have, have a thing with three notes. I have a three. I can go. And I'm, and I'm cool. And maybe I, maybe I don't do anything with it that day, but maybe I'm a young Anthony Williams. And I'm like, and then the next day I'm like, and then the third day I'm, and I start riffing on it. Yes. Yes. And then it would 19- have been some, it would have been something like that. And then in 1963, um, you have Dan is the man in the van. Like Anthony Williams didn't wake up with and just arrange Dan is the man in the van. Like no, he didn't. Uh, but over but, days, I and mean, days once and days. he went on Taspo, um, once he returned from Taspo, he he took music classes. Mm. He felt he needed to know music theory. He took voice training because he said he didn't want to have to learn, you know, fingering for an instrument. He just wanted the theory, and he thought the easiest thing would have been voice. Mm-hmm. So he he actually took voice training so that he could begin to get the rudiments of, of of theory, and once he got enough to go on his own, he he um he went off on his own. So he was studying music, um, very very closely from the fifties on. Well, and also just to, I mean on the appropriation tip, in terms of influence, um, Andy Norell hit this point home to me, and I and you can clarify it further if 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 Andy's wrong here but listening to early calypso music and soca music prior to when kitchener went to london mm-hmm. and recorded london is the place for me and then came back you all of a sudden when he comes back you start hearing massive horn lines being played 
big brass hits in, in his tunes. Why? Because when he was in London, he heard Count Basie's big band and was like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, <laughs> you but, can do no, this? That's, 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 happened all, that's always happened. Right, right. But in terms of what I'm saying is to me, it, like Kitchener's history makes when I listen to and I hear the horn lines to Panini Minor and then I go listen to Count Basie stuff from when it's like, oh, yes, of course. This all makes total sense that this stuff is anyway it's just fascinating to me to now as a 42 year old (laughs) i wish i i wish i had had this these podcasts and these conversations when i was 19 because i feel like my my elementary school uh, presentations would have been far more interesting um but But, it's i mean that that what what i find also quite interesting is um the the those young young men who invented pan they were listening listening to um you know popular dance music. Mm-hmm. You were listening to Calypso's, um, with, with, which was brassy. Um, they were listening to um, Latin American, Latin music. Um, and, you know, the dance bands. And what, what I found interesting is that um, they, this in, instrument they were inventing, it's a percussive instrument, but they wanted to get sustained notes, like the horns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So very early on, they would roll to get a sustained note. Um, and that to me is actually quite interesting because the, the, the mentor of Pan was a piano. A piano doesn't try to get sustained notes other than mm-hmm. what you could naturally sustain. I mean, so piano, and that's what Chopin had to do to, 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 to teach the piano to sing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because it's a percussive instrument like a pan. And in Trinidad, once, um, in the very early stages, once um, pan acquired the first few notes, uh, you needed music theory to, to, to understand how to harmonize, how to build chords and things like that. And the people who knew music um, theory in Trinidad, they tended to be um, girls, because girls all had piano lessons. Mm. So mm. somebody's sister, somebody's aunt, somebody's neighbor would have a piano. Mm. I mean, there were a few exceptions, but generally they all relied on someone who had access to a piano. I mean, that's why the first classical music played was Chopin um, by Pan. You know, so, and then when you need something to tune your pan off, again, somebody some neighbor had a piano. So it's ironic that um, the piano mentored the pan in so many Mm. ways, but at the same time, the pan really felt closer to the horns for the sustained notes. It's interesting. Go ahead, sorry. I've I've very many times argued that I, I, I think the arrangers in Trinidad should try to touch base with the, um, the, the percussive possibilities of pan, like a lot of West African music has that percussive feel about it. Even when mm-hmm. the stringed instruments, when you hear the chorus and so on, they have these complex interlocking patterns. And the only arranger, pan arranger I've seen who has explicitly done that has been, ironically, Andy Norell. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. 
and if you if you're advising a Rangers, I mean, yes, once Tony Williams and then developed on by Bertie Marshall, you got the harmonics in the notes and you got that clean ringing sound. That's the standard sound of a pan now. But there's a warmth about the old pans um, mm-hmm. that don't have the harmonics. That uh, I don't yeah. sh- I don't think they should be just jettisoned because it's another it's another color. I you one of my I, favorite I love listening to Earl Rodney play because his drums, I think, and, and again, uh, I'm going to say something that I is going to come off wrong. His drums sound terrible. If you just sampled them note by note yes. and you just were like, okay, let me hear the middle C. Boop. <laughs> then you hear like C sharp. You know, you're like, what the fuck? And then, but, but in the right hands and someone who knows how to make that instrument sing, I'd listen to Earl Rodney play those pans all goddamn day. Like, I, you know, you're not going to get any argument out of me. Now, if I were to sit down on those pans, it'd sound like- it would sound a little different, but, but, but I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I love that old, the steel is thicker. The pans are a little shallower. Yes. The notes ring a little bit more, you know, there's, there's a lot to it. Well, I mean, I remember, hearing an arrangement of Spree Simon by a band from Tunapuna called Nocturne Fascinators. The person who was the arranger, his name is Jordan. He's now in Australia. and, and I mean, he, he's doing marvelous things there. He's actually trained a band. I don't know if you've ever seen them on YouTube. It's really quite remarkable. The, um, the, the Royal Guard of Oman. I have not. Oh, I'll write it down now. <laughs> I, I mean, love that name. The Royal Guard of Oman. Yeah, well, the thing is, it is a royal guard, and Oman is a Middle East um, kingdom. Right, right. So you, you have these guys in their, their robes and their head ties and so on, like uh-huh. mus- formal Muslim wear, right. playing and gently swing, you know, David Rudder's the hammer. <laughs> Sorry, I, that, I didn't mean to laugh out loud. I just kind of, when you said gently swaying, I just pictured them playing this upbeat soca tune, just like... <laughs> Sorry. I mean, if, if you Google it, if you even look I will. It I'll on, look it on YouTube, you'll see. No, so so this guy Jordan, I mean, he he's found his way in Australia where he is now, and he he groomed that band among others. But I heard him arrange for a Pan Ramage, his band from Tunapuna, and they started off um, Spree Simon Kitchener's Spree Simon with one of the small original ping pongs, which is about mm. that size, mm-hmm. about eight notes. So they just played it. And then the band came in and it was like sonically as if you went from 1946, whoosh, to 1995. And it was just, mm. it was just so wonderful. When, when we premiered my film in, um, in La Rochelle in France, Andy was there, Andy and Ray Hallman, and some of the players who played in the film and the rest of the band was sort of um, supported by Calypso Association, which is the Parisian mm-hmm. steel band. Mm-hmm. And they, they gave a sort of potted history of pan in music. So they had some of the old instruments we had used in the film, and they would play that, and they would move through the simple tunes that Ray Holman had um, composed, for the, for, again, for the film, up to... Um, Andy's and, and, and Boogsy's panorama arrangements that they had performed that year in, in, in 2013. Um, 
So with Andy narrating in between, they were actually able to tell the history of Pan mm. in song, which I think is particularly rich. I mean, it's something which I, I, I think would be great to work on. You'd, we got um, archival old instruments made for the film. You know, we couldn't use real old instruments because they, you know, they were thrown around and you, mm-hmm. they had to be distressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something actually you might want to try. Well, it's it's something I've done a few podcasts with Andy. I think I've done three with him because I had him as a guest to talk to my NYU students last year when we were remote and. He's really been – he has imparted on me very specifically the I, the sort of thinking of the steel drum – or the steel pan band as a percussion ensemble first and thinking of it like as its roots as being a percussion ensemble. And then – but that's not – no value – like that is a steel band in the same way that hearing phase two today is a steel band and being able to talk about all of those things equally – is like being able to look at 1963, you know, Pan Am North Stars and being like, that's a steel band. And then being able to look at, you know, Mangrove from England and being like, that's a steel band in different contexts, you know, and yes. like this is, this, and being able to sort of place all these things has been, Andy's really helped me think a lot. And he's who, who really impressed upon me the influence of Anthony Williams because I, my bias came, my bias was Cliff Alexis. I grew up. Cliff was a tuner who I knew from when I was 16. And so in my head, I was like, well, Cliff is the first tuner. Like, that's what happens, right? Like, you know, I'm, I didn't know any better. And, but he was somebody, I now place Cliff as a 42 year old man, more in a, in a more logical context of like his influence on the American educational system in terms of Trinidad, in terms of steel bands, having a presence along with Ellie, um, in America, particularly, I would say yeah. those two guys are patient zero for the reason I'm even talking to you is because Cliff Alexis decided to leave Trinidad, go on tour with Liberace and land in St. Paul, Minnesota, you know, yes. like, and so anyway, it, this, this stuff, I, and this leads me to my last question for you, just cause I've already stolen an almost an hour and a half of your life here, Kim, Whoa. and you'll never get it back. I apologize. <laughs> oh gosh, it's great chatting. But I mean, we, um, could, we, I, could, we could probably go on for another two and a half hours. Eh? And I think most people zoom, my zoom fatigue will give out well before yeah. that, but I, my door is always open. I am happy to chat with you anytime on this stuff. And I would love to do it just for the historical record to have these chats here. But my final question for you today is, mm. Back to the sort of idea that history is history is an accumulation of days and small actions and ideas and conversations rather than a year of sort of abstract, we don't know what happened and blah, blah, blah. We are now on August 5th, 2021. Today is another day in the history of Steel Pan in terms of mm-hmm. where it's headed and where it's going. I want to ask you a question. Can you, like, where does Kim Johnson... Where do you hope Pan is going? And then where, as a historian, take your personal bias out of it, where do you see it going? Okay. Um, Where do I hope it's going? Uh, I see, I hope it can fulfill its potential. As we started off saying, um, Pan is, is, in a way, it's, it's swimming against some very, very powerful currents. 
is swimming against the current of recorded music. Because as you know, Pan is a live music thing. Mm-hmm. Pan, in a sense, gives music back to people. Mm-hmm. If you think of music as, as, a, as a human taste, it's like, you know, you enjoy food, you enjoy sex. These are things you evolve to enjoy because it's good for you. <laughs> it's good for the species. <laughs> Yeah. Music is one of those. And, and when I say music, I mean music making. Yeah. And that it should be taken away from people uh, for commercial ends. I, I think that's a terrible loss we suffer. And Pan swims against that current, yeah. as you would have experienced. Um, so my hope for Pan is that it can spread that influence um, it's also, you know, another very, very powerful current it swims against is the current of um, vocal music. Um, mm. When was the last time you heard a piece of instrumental music in the top 100? You know, vocal music has taken over and more, more rhythm than mm. melody and more simple harmonies than complex, you know, orchestral Mm-hmm. Um, compositions and so Pan is pushing against all of those three very powerful things. Mm. Um, it has evolved ways to, to to survive in 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 this in this hostile environment, mm-hmm. and I would like to see it um, develop ways to, to to spread even more, because I think not just that it would be good for Pan, obviously it would be, but I think it would be good for people. Like, if we move away from the, 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 the music-making aspect, if you think of complex music, I mean, there is complex music being performed, you know, in classical music and jazz and so on. Um, Pan's approach to complex music is, as I suggested, the op- steel bands in Trinidad opens its doors to the public. So you could go in there and you hang out and you hang out, you drink a few beers and you meet your friends and you hang out and, and they... The song, you, you experience the song as it grows so that your, first of all, that song's like the best arrangement because you know it the best. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. also, it means you can relate to a very complex piece of music, which is difficult if you're not a musician and you're hearing it for the first time. So part of its social um, ethos, Pan has evolved a way of raising your aesthetic level, raising the aesthetic level of the public. Mm. Um, which has been lowered by recorded music, by, by DJs, and, and, and by all sorts of um, influences. So there are all of these things that I would um, hope for. Um, what I foresee um, is, is, is a bit more pessimistic, but you, know, you have pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Mm-hmm. That's um, why. That's why I asked the the double sided um, question because I know that you're capable of inhabiting I, I, I those see, spaces. I see. Pan Pan is running down the road that jazz went. Mm. Jazz is you know some of the best musicians, but the truth is jazz is a niche. Um, the average person, the average young kid, is not interested in Winton Marsalis or who you know any jazz great. They, if they were to go and play in Central Park people would walk past. Um, and even in Trinidad, um, apart from the party and the enjoyment and so on, 
uh, a lot of young people are not interested in pants. So it's, it's going down that same road of being, mm. you know, celebrated. Everyone talks, you know, jazz is great, wonderful. Nobody's going to buy the CD though. <laughs> um, it's, yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're, it is a trend that I've, that I've sort of ignored a little bit um, in my, my workings in, in Brooklyn and in New York with the, in the, the pan scene there, but also in Trinidad is the sort of like, there's been some times where I'll walk up to somebody in a, in a steel band in Brooklyn and, and I'll make a reference that I think is like the most, I'll say like, I'll be like, Oh, uh, this arrangement that Dr. Pat Bishop did with Desperados. And they'll look at me and they'll be like, well, who's, doc- who's Dr. Pat Bishop. Yeah. And, yes. and there's this moment where I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm a huge nerd. And like, I know Pat Bishop because I'm a big nerd. Like that's like, I'm, there's a million people in the United States who are musically important, who I don't have any clue of, you know? And it's like that, but for an Island that's as small as Trinidad, my, there's a part of me that's just like, Oh God, you should know who Pat Bishop is. Yes, of <laughs> you, course know? Should. you know? Um, so there's that. I mean, my whole, I think my hope could be made realistic. Mm-hmm. It has to do with pedagogy. Mm. I mean, I think the, the, how the steel bands and how the schools and so on teach pan and teach music, I think they, they, they're moving in the wrong direction. Um, they do it in a formal way. Mm. The blackboard and chalk, and this is, this is your music staves and so on. Yeah. I think that's important, but learn it later. But you start with um, learning by ear. You start by improvising. And once that hooks you, then you'll want to know more. You'll want to know the theory more. You'd want to know maybe, depending on the kind of music you play, you may want to learn um, standard notation, or maybe not. Um, mm. if, you're, if you're into rock, if you're into death metal, mm-hmm. well, you could take your pan and play that. In other words, by teaching you um, audition and by teaching you improvisation, I'm giving you the instrument to do what you want, not what I want. Um, mm. And I think that is, that may begin to generate some of the love, um, regenerate some of the love that has been lost, um, rather than how they try to do it, which is just um, formal, you know, like what they taught, how they taught girls piano a mm-hmm. generation ago, that with very few exceptions, kill the girl's love for pianos. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, it's, it's one of the things that I, that I feel like my hope for this instrument, if I'm, if I'm can be so uh, arrogant to have a hope for this instrument. Um, I, the thing I've recognized spending a lot of time in classical, like Western classical music mm-hmm. in my studies at Yale and at Akron and, and you know, my work in so percussion is, pretty heavily in Western classical, like, like contemporary music traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm realizing that I think if you were working with Bach on the cello suites, when Bach was writing the cello suites, Wait, Josh, hang on a second. I just got to open the door. Hang on. Yeah. Yeah. Please, please. Hold on. Yeah, sorry about that. Repeat. No, sorry. Um, is that that um, if you were working with Bach on the cello suites when Bach was writing them, 
it would have been a way more interesting experience than I think we think it would have been now. If you were playing in an orchestra at the premiere of Beethoven's Nine, I'm going to guess that that vibe would have been very similar to playing with Desperados. Like, oh, yes, like, absolutely. Like, and I feel like over time, what history sadly sometimes does is it weeds out that complex part and leaves you with just the music. And and then we can play Beethoven 9, and it's all great. But we've lost the thing. We've lost the smell of beer in the air. We've lost the smell of the stench because at the time when he was writing it, there were probably there wasn't running water. You know, yeah. like that shit matters. And of who's course. cooking? Who's cooking corn soup in Desperado's yard or Skiffle's yard on the breaks? And who's the vagrant that ran into the yard and punched somebody and ran out and then ruined the whole rehearsal for that day? Like. That stuff is crucial, and my hope as a historian or as a person <laughs> for history <laughs> is that like we have to figure out a way not to lose that. I think if we lose that, then it kind of doesn't matter. Like but that's I, the problem with with like orchestra music now is like people are like I don't have any relationship to it. It's yeah because we've gotten rid of the most interesting parts. Like we've gotten rid of the nuance here. Would it be possible for for, for steel bands in the U.S. to? to practice in public. When I say in public, uh, I mean, like, for example, if there's a, a college band, maybe near the cafeteria or something, so mm. people could just drift in and drift out. Right. Because that might, that might do something, um, bring about some of that. I, I, yeah, I think there would be something to that. There's something about the vulnerability of a steel band that is just has to work. And I will say as a driller in Skiffle Bunch, the vulnerability of, like, drilling a steel band and there's like 16 people behind you telling you what you're doing wrong. <laughs> you know, having a 90 year old Trinidadian man tap you on the shoulder and grab you and be like, the basses are way too loud, you know, like, <laughs> and I'm like, the basses aren't playing any of the right notes. Their volume isn't the issue, you know, like, and, and like that, but again, but that, that doesn't happen. The Cleveland Orchestra doesn't rehearse like that. If the Cleveland Orchestra rehearsed, rehearsed and random, random strangers could walk in off the street and be like, slower, <laughs> faster, <laughs> you know, that, that would be awesome. But uh, just a question. I mean, you've played with Phase 2, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you find it playing with Boogsy's extremely syncopated um, arrangements? Because his songs always have a, a moment when it's so much on the offbeat, it's very hard to even move to it unless you focus on the iron. Did you have a problem? Uh, yeah, there was some of that. Some of his stuff, I will say, in Kendall, in my experience with Kendall Williams and his arrangements too, because he's he is a big Bugsy acolyte in terms of influences, and so mm-hmm. I, I see a little bit in Kendall's music too. Um, with Bugsy, the I'm still of the mindset a little bit where like, I think I know where the rhythm sits within the grid and I know where, like where one is maybe I can, I know if something's coming on the E of one or the uh of one, like I know how to, I think I know that, but there's a point at which I actually then just start going, I'm going to go one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, three, four, two, three, five, two, three. I'm going to do that 17 times. And then on the 18th time, it's going to be right. And because if I'm trying to feel it, against the grid and the whole band is feeling it one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, that feels different. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually wrong for me to inhabit the mindset of like, no, actually I'm playing this on the E's and us. 
<laughs> but I'm playing it like an E and an uh. You're playing the E's and the U's like they're downbeats. You're going one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, four, two, three, five, two, three. And I'm going uh, da, da, uh, da, da, uh, da, like on all the offbeats. One is a clearly better way to play it if 150 other people are playing it that way. And so it, when I'm in a steel band, I think I try to very much inhabit the way people are feeling it rather the way people are thinking it. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, I think when I'm drilling, that's the hardest part is because I have the score in front of me and I know nobody else does. And I know where things are supposed to go and I know how they're feeling it. And so for me to drill sometimes is like, all right, how do I say on this note, on that C sharp, I need you to accent that more but it's the 19th C sharp that you play in the row, <laughs> you know, in your, in your head, it's the 19th F, you know, C sharp. So accent that one. Whereas if I was rehearsing with an orchestra here, I would say on measure two, the end of one accent that C sharp. Mm-hmm. Or do it like Boogsy, just sing it out, you know, go right. bang, 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 bang. And in a moment in an orchestra rehearsal where you've got a union clock ticking away and everybody's yeah. got a score in front of them, I can that's a I can do that in three seconds. I'm okay to take twenty minutes in a steel band to get that same idea across because the feel is going to be different. If you taught the yeah. Cleveland Orchestra Beethoven Seven all by rote, or, or Beethoven Five, ba da da dum, ba da da dum, do you think they'd all be going ba da da dum? No, they'd all go ba 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 bum like <laughs> like a downbeat, you know, and. That's the that's the sort of tight tightrope I think me as a Western classically trained musician is, mm-hmm. is constantly trying to to walk, um, in the context of a steel band because I think it's important. I'm agreeing with you. I don't think everybody just reading off a score is going to be the end all to be all. I all, I don't think I don't think everybody only learning by rote is the end all to be all either because yeah. there's how many panor I mean there's what thirty bands in Trinidad, forty. I mean there's a ton yeah, from yeah. the small oh, all the oh, way up. Yes. To, no, I mean, and, if, if you're including um, medium and small, it's, it's many more than that. It's 100 and something. And so let's say there's 100 pieces arranged and composed every year that yeah. disappear from the historical record. To me, that is the, like, guillotine coming down on the pan world, that if I can pull ourselves out from underneath that blade, like, mm. we need to publish this stuff. This stuff needs to get down on paper so that people understand... You need to see a Trinidad All-Stars arrangement and then hear it and then look back at the score to understand why they play triplets that way. Mm-hmm. It's not da, 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 da. And it's not one E, a two E, a three. It's zat, Like, that's important. And if we don't write that stuff down and talk about it, well, the, the, th- that's I the trouble, you know. A compromise, inadequate, but a compromise is that for about the past um, perhaps 13 or 14 years, um, two, two Japanese sound engineers, um, Katsumai and Yuichi Wanatabe, have mm. recorded all small, medium, large preliminaries, semifinals, mm. and finals. I mean, they have tons and tons and tons, piles of hard drives of panorama. So everything is recorded. Good. So it's not scored, um, but but I, w- at least I wish there's this audio recording. I wish there was a grant, like if we could just get like a three hundred thousand dollar grant that would pair up every steel band from the pan around the neck to you know phase two 
with somebody who was fluent with Sibelius or final or uh, uh, finale. And their job, their only job was to come in and just be Bugsy's assistant, be Kendall's assistant, be Ray Holman's assistant. And you're just, your job is just there as he's calling out notes. You're like, no, I got it. I'm just going to write it down. I'm just going to keep track of it for you. And then if he changes it the next day, oh, cool, got that changed. Just going to change it. And then at the end of every year, there's a database where these pieces are published and where the composers then can get paid yeah. <laughs> for their music to be played. Um, that's why we're talking about Beethoven now. Yeah, he wrote it. He wrote it down. If he didn't write any of his stuff down, I guarantee you, we wouldn't be talking about we it. We wouldn't. Yes. And like as a historian, I think that's why I'm so curious to talk to you. And I've uh, and Kim, I have absolutely robbed you of most of your afternoon, and it has been. Uh, and I, I want to be respectful here and let you go. Um, but I'm really grateful for your time. This has been. It's been. It's, it was great. This it was has great. Been a, we must a, do it again. I would absolutely love that, and and I would love to to prioritize doing it with a carob or a stag in hand. Um, no, uh, let's see. Around October, I may be in New York for a while. Would you be? Would you be there? I, I there's a slim chance that I would be. Yes, sorry. I, in I other words, yes, I will be. October, November, I will be in Maryland for I don't know a month or six weeks. Uh-huh. And I will go into New York. I'll drive into New York for, okay. for a week or so. So perhaps we could coordinate something. Give me a heads up. My the studio that I rehearse in with so percussion is in uh, is in Brooklyn in the Navy Yard right. there. Um, so if you come but up that also, way, hit me up. Also, maybe maybe if I could I could give a, um, a a multimedia presentation at NYU or something. That'd be awesome. I would love because that. I, yeah. yeah, because I'll walk with my laptop, you know, photographs and early recordings and film and so on. Yeah, and I would lo- I would love to. I need to get. Uh, you have a you have a, diff- a a new edition of the illustrated story of Pan coming out. Is that correct? Yeah, it's no, it's out. It's out. It's out. Okay. Um, well, well, let's leave it there. Where can folks find that if they wanted to and, and learn more about about your writing and stuff? If they want to learn more about you, Kim. Um, I could send it to you. Um, the link. I mean, I I will very soon get it on Amazon. I'm just trying to. Honestly, I was trying to avoid enriching Jeff Bezos any more than he's already rich, but mm-hmm. I have I have to reach. So what I'll do um, until it goes on Amazon in the chat um, is the, the links where you could get it if you are in the U.S. Because I have I have a pile of them in the U.S. So it'll okay. be mailed from the U.S. to the U.S. Okay. I also have in Trinidad and and, and in other countries, but. So in the chat, you'll see the link there, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I got it. I copied it. So okay, I'll, I'll, I'll put it up with the, uh, when I launch the podcast, this episode, I'll put it in there as well. Okay. If okay. you want me to send any photographs for, for this, the podcast as well, just ask me and I'll send them. I'll email them to you. Okay. Okay. Amazing. Kim Johnson, thank you so much for your time. Uh, stay healthy. And I really, really, really do hope we can meet and hug and, and share a drink in person. It would be oh, really Absolutely. Lovely. That would be great. All right. Thank you so much. Take care and stay healthy. Bye. Thanks, Kim. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on uh, in so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. 
Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder. Um, just a really nice guy. Very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. mangochowclothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.